Okay, welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week. It's uh, September 9th, 2022. This is the show in which we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation for the week. And uh, I guess it being Labor Day week, it wasn't a very busy week overall, but there's a few things to talk about, including at least at least one acquisition uh, that I, I think I almost flew under the radar because it was announced on Labor Day. Uh, but uh, a few other things as well. I am Bob Ambrogi. Uh, I have the blog Law Sites and the podcast Law Next and the Legal Tech Directory Law Next, which you can find at directory.lawnext.com. And uh, our smallish panel today, uh, as you see arrayed before you, uh, we've got uh, Nikki, you're black back. You haven't, you're black. <laughs> you're, Nikki Black is back after uh, having not been with us for a few shows, but uh, welcome back. Tell us about yourself. Uh, I am Nikki Black. I'm the legal technology evangelist at My Case Law Practice Management Software. Um, I write legal technology columns for um, Above the Law, ABA Journal, uh, The Daily Record, and I also um, head up, I write the legal industry report for um, uh, my case in LaPay and also the some my case benchmark reports that I've been drafting this year too. So I also do some, create some stuff there as well. Um, but basically I like to write and talk about the intersection of law and tech and help lawyers understand how to use technology more effectively and encourage them to do so. And uh, another legal technology evangelist, Steve Embry. <laughs> Hey, Steve Embry, I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is also at the crossroads or intersection between technology and law and other things. I also am the uh, chair of the ABA Law Practice Division. We have about 25,000 members and lots of content, so we certainly got to put that plug in there. I'm glad to be back this week. I was gone last week. And, uh, and last but not least, Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm more of a, I mean, I guess they're tech evangelists. I'm more of a tech apostate. So <laughs> we're here uh, to chat anyway. Great. Um, and uh, yeah, Steve, uh, speaking of the ABA, we did get the, uh, I guess, the go ahead this week uh, in terms of tech show that we will have the uh, Startup Alley once again at Tech Show, which uh, I'm glad to hear. And uh, maybe Good. even bigger and better this year. They're possibly talking about even getting a bigger room for it than we've had in the past. So that will be exciting, I hope. Um, yep. that. We're gonna start start making some announcements around that coming up pretty soon. Um, and uh, we did that last week, we did our, uh, our, our uh, sort of ILTA post-mortem show uh, with uh, a bunch of us, but but Steve, Steve and Nikki, you were both not here last week. Uh, and I wondered maybe we should just kind of start getting your thoughts uh, on that because we didn't get a chance to hear from you last week. Uh, what? What? So, uh, you know, Steve, Steve, you were you were there. You went to uh, quite a few <laughs> programs. Saw you around. What? What? What was your takeaway? I, I thought you were going to say I went to quite a few par quite a few parties, which I did. That do. too. That too. <laughs> uh, I only know because I saw it, you there. It was. I thought it was a good, good conference. I, did a post on it, um, a few glitches here and there, which we've all sort of talked about and chatted about. I'm sure you guys talked about it last week. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about it is um, 
a lot more integrations seem to be going on um, in the industry. Uh, Microsoft has kind of emerged as a silent partner, maybe. Uh, I don't know if that's the way to describe it. They, they, they weren't obviously there in person, but it seemed like everybody you talked to was doing something with Microsoft. And I was <clears throat> kind of thinking that, um, you know, it's, I think Joe and I talked to David Carnes, and I remember him talking about the maturing of the industry. And one of the takeaways I had is it seemed, um, you know, when a few years ago, you you would have a two dissatisfied lawyers at a big law firm trying to figure out how to do research in the middle of the night. And they one of them said, well, let's, let's, let's build a better tool to do this with. And they sprouted a uh, fast case. And there was a lot of that. And now it seems like there's more, uh, there's more uh, venture capital money. There's more integrations, there's more size. And I, you know, I sort of wonder, you know, what's going to happen to the industry is it, is it a good thing, a bad thing? Uh, are we losing some of that sort of lawyer, hands-on lawyering entrepreneurship that we that used to start all these companies? It seemed like, for better or worse. Um, but that's that was just an impression I had. It uh, it seemed like there was more of that going on. I don't know if that's something you guys noticed, but I had a good time. The parties were really good. <laughs> most of the most of the sessions were good. Uh, I didn't get COVID. Uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't get. A, I didn't get any free lunches, but neither did any of us, for that matter. So, um, but no, it was. It was a good. Oh, I, I got a free lunch at some. Some what Joe? I think you were there too at the one on the yep. uh, like floor oh, yeah, planning yeah. for law firms Map, or something. Maptician. <laughs> yep. Maptician. Uh, which is actually kind of a cool. A kind of a cool. It was. Yeah. I did. I did have um, a little dispute with Jeff Brandt because I said something about. The, at least the food I had at the receptions was pretty good. And he immediately slapped my hand and said, no, you, you dumbass. It was terrible. I don't know what kind of food, what kind of taste you have, but it was really awful. Um, but yeah. I, thought, I thought it for, for a, a reception, you know, a conference reception, it wasn't too bad, but maybe, hey. maybe that's because I had too much to drink by that point. I don't he know. was just grouchy because <laughs> he was wearing a boot all week. What are you going to say? You know, he's just... <laughs> But, uh, you know, actually, I thought your, your, the uh, observation you just made about Microsoft is interesting because I don't know if any of you would remember this, but I mean, a few years ago, Microsoft had this whole kind of division de devoted to the legal industry and, and to promoting office in the legal industry and to building out other products around, you know, security and compliance for the legal industry. And um, that kind of died out in a way. But at the same time, you know, more... It, you know, it's it's not that Microsoft gave up on the legal industry by any means, but um, more and more of these, you know, as you say, other companies have been sort of piggyback, piggybacking in a way on on Office in, in 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 interesting ways that make Office, you know, in and of itself a, a sort of a viable practice management uh, platform. Um, you know, I mean, Law Toolbox is one good example that that we've all talked to, I'm sure, but. You know, they're, they they kind of have made a made an art of of, uh, of uh, attaching themselves to uh, office in in a way that really you know cleverly integrates their court calendaring application with office uh, calendar and Teams and and email and all of that, so that you can uh, really effectively uh, manage and calendar and all of that matters. Uh, right within office and uh, almost, you know, getting and, and all your document storage, of course, is there. And uh, 
So it, it is an interesting trend. Maybe it's a little bit of a, if you, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, you know, it's, it's Microsoft offices, ubiquitous in-law offices and uh, why not, why not uh, ride that, ride that. But um, Nikki, what about you? Are you, you, you were there less time than, than uh, some of us, but. Uh, yeah, I was there a little less time. Uh, my daughter was supposed to go to college on the 23rd as a freshman. I didn't want to miss that. And then she ended up entering, uh, uh, signing up for an orientation program that got her there earlier. So oh. I probably could have been there for longer, but oh well. Um, but uh, I thought that the, I think the Microsoft thing is actually really interesting because um, uh, one of the companies that I talked to was, and that I wrote about, um, Peppermint was, uh, you know, it's a CRM, but they sort of, their home base is in the inside of Microsoft um, Outlook. Um, and that's sort of what they uh, hold out as distinguishing themselves from the other CRMs. So it, and it does a lot of what, uh, and it's interesting to me, the reason they did that is because lawyers spend all their time in there, um, a lot of time in that ecosystem and in Microsoft and in their email. And so the CRM is in included in there. Uh, so like it provides you with all this additional insight on the people you're emailing with, for example. And you know, there's, um, add-ons you can add to gmail that will do the same thing not legal specific but um so i thought it was interesting that that's really how they set themselves apart and how they built their software out from the get-go and i think it is indicative of that trend i mean law firms are not going to leave that ecosystem especially the larger the law firm you get into the smaller ones may be in g suites but more often than not the larger firms are in Microsoft and in that ecosystem. So I think that's definitely a trend. And I think that's, if you're targeting that market, you're gonna have to figure out how to operate within that ecosystem and integrate with it. Um, the other things I noticed were the integrations, but the way I've raised, uh, coined it was APIs, you know, just APIs all over the place, you know, everyone's, and some of the most interesting ones, I think I've written about this quite a few times, but I love what Lexus is doing. You know, LexisNexis has this, um, they're making dynamic doc, the law firm's documents dynamic by um, having all these hyperlinks. They're almost like, um, it reminds me of like web pages back in the day when the internet first rolled online. You know, it's these dynamic, uh, they add um, links to the firm's internal data and documents that take you back to um, Lexis and their databases and give you additional information about whatever just happens to be in the firm's documents. And I thought that was particularly interesting. And then these APIs where other companies can either provide additional data on top of what Lexis would provide or just provide some interesting way of leveraging that um, concept. So I thought it was super interesting um, it, to see the follow-up on how that's actually coming to fruition after they'd announced that concept a couple of years ago. Um, and so that, but for me, really what stood out though, was just um, APIs and integrations and everyone trying to be the home base or the platform from which a law firm operates. And, you know, this is where you are and you spring forth from that platform into every other platform. And, you know, I, and I think that that ties into what you just suggested, which, you know, they already have a platform that they're all in <laughs> and everyone's trying to boot Microsoft out of the way. And I don't know if that's going to work or. Um, how uh, how that the dust is going to settle, but it's interesting to see it sort of, uh, I don't know if explodes the word, but, you know, transition at this point. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We all saw sort of the same things. I mean, in my post about it, I kind of wrote about some of the same things too. And the idea of, of platform fatigue, which, uh, it, you know, explains the popularity of using Office as something to tack yourself onto because 
if the lawyers are already there, then they don't have to keep jumping out of there to do other things. And uh, and I also wrote about the sort of the ideas of you know the APIs as a as a theme and integrations. Um, the uh, the other uh, theme maybe that came out of it, Joe Joe and I were on a on a webinar earlier this week. Uh, our, our sort of our final say, I think, on Ilticon maybe, um, talking about another theme that we saw there, which was these sort of disconnects. Uh, and it wasn't so much the theme of some of the, uh, you know, the, the speakers or the presenters as much as more what we were kind of hearing uh, Hearing among the uh, the rank and file there uh, uh, in the in the uh, exhibit hall and, and wandering around the conference. Um, Joe, did you want to talk about uh, that a little bit? I mean, what, yeah, yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. So this, so we did this webinar. I'm sure we will be posting it on above the law somewhere if we haven't already. Uh, I'll figure that out, everybody. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I'm not. I, I'm frazzled. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So we talked about disconnects, oh, and this was. Uh, theme that we kind of came up with, uh, partially from talking to people in exhibit halls and what we were hearing, but also just our own insights. Like, why is it some of the best stuff we hear, uh, the great ideas that we hear don't get picked up, don't get adopted in the ways we think they will? And we decided that it's because fundamentally in multiple different ways, there's a break that exists between one stakeholder and another and there just isn't enough happening to bridge those gaps uh things like generational is obviously one but we also talked about law firms and legal departments being on separate pages we talked about the it groups and the lawyers who are the end users not having the ability to you know and i one of the things i said repeatedly on that show was that the it folks are actually doing a magnificent job frankly uh of guessing basically guessing in the dark or quasi dark about what a lawyer might actually want and then adopt because they probably aren't getting a ton of FaceTime with a lawyer explaining exactly what they want. So with some vague clues, they're going out and getting things uh, and hoping that the lawyers will adopt it. It's it was interesting. And th those are just a few of the gaps that we identified that are keeping things from happening. You know, one of the things that I, I probably mentioned in my post on the Ilticon, I know I've mentioned it before because it's a constant sort of uh, fascination, and that is that when you when you look at these legal conferences, legal tech conferences, excluding the ABA Tech Show, which is a little bit different because it's smaller law firms, but the number of lawyers, practicing lawyers, which actually show up is really small. <laughs> and so to your point, Joe, what happens is you, you get IT people who come and get jazzed up and see all these things. And then they have to go back and try to explain it to somebody that doesn't want to have the time or inclination to listen and doesn't understand what they're saying very well. And, you know, sometimes the vendors don't make it real clear to in simple language that the IT folks can use to explain to lawyers that really don't understand what's going on. And so you have, you do have this disconnect. Um, and I don't know that that's going to change because I don't see a lot of lawyers other than, you know, small firm lawyers that frequently go to tech show, which is one of the things that makes it kind of an interesting and good show. But, um, you know, I don't see that changing. It's kind of, it's yeah. kind of across the board, you know, <laughs> they just don't go. And, and in fact, I was, when I was in a law firm, you know, I, I went to clock one year and uh, 
I you know, had trouble, had a lot of trouble getting my expenses paid by the law firm. And then I'm, I'm looking at who's actually there on the client side. I'm going, wait a minute, there's all these great clients here and very few lawyers. What, what is wrong here? <laughs> yeah, like I, um, I kind of analogized it to uh, that. It's kind of like that Plato allegory of Plato's cave kind of situation where you've got, you've got the IT folks go out and see and talk to these vendors and see these great products. And then they have to go back and explain them and it, it, to people who have no comprehension of what they would look like. Uh, and that's, that's a hard job. And I'm frankly, it, you know, as bad as legal tech adoption is as a general matter, the thing that we always complain about, like, frankly, I'm kind of impressed. It's as good as it is all things considered. Yeah. I mean, the other thing we were talking about in this panel is, you know, not just that disconnect, which which you're absolutely right. A lot of the IT people go, the lawyers don't go. Um, uh, Legal Week might be a little different. I mean, you might get a few more lawyers at Legal Week in New York, but you still get a lot of IT people. ILTA is, ILTA is probably the worst or the best in terms of a lot of IT people and few lawyers at ILTA. But I think the a lot of the IT people can kind of get all excited about uh, products that they see that maybe aren't necessarily even the right fit for some of the lawyers in their firm. I mean, they, they get more, they, you know, the shiny new things kind of syndrome. They see things that are really cool and technically cool. But if they were really in in having a really open dialogue with some of the lawyers in their firm, they may realize that maybe this doesn't solve or fit within the workflow of the lawyers. I mean, I think part of the pro, part of the disconnect is is not just that lawyers aren't at these tech shows, but the IT people don't really always know what it is the lawyers really need or what they want. Right. And, and, and it, yeah, I guess the other point is sometimes the lawyers don't know either, but uh, they're, they're not connected enough to sort of understand the workflows and, and all of that, uh, that, that, uh, that can help bridge that communication issue. Well, that's, yeah. Go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry. No. Well, I was just going to say the other problem, of course, is that the IT folks and the vendors sometimes sort of forget the business model of the lawyers and that is bill by the hour. So, you know, every hour they have to spend trying to figure out how to use a piece of technology is, you know, so much money down the drain, so to speak. So ease of use, you know, and for a for a dummy down lawyer is pretty important in terms of implementing the technology in the firm. And, um, you know, IT folks and vendors sometimes sort of get lost in this. Well, it's easy for me to use. I know how to click here, click here, click here, click there. But they forget that if I have to click twice and I'm trying to, you know, do two, two different things, get a brief out the door and talk, have five conference calls, I, I, I'm not going to click more than twice. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. yet another disconnect. Well, and I apologize, why... Nikki, I interrupted you. Oh, that's all right. I, arguably, I interrupted you. So we were, we, we mutually interrupted. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the, it kind of highlights one of the um, uh, challenges overall, which is, I've lost my my thought because of the mutual interrupting. Um, it's <laughs> it's this idea that uh, law firms can run like businesses, and they're not run like businesses. They're run by lawyers who don't understand business, and so because or don't care to understand business. So because that's um, because that happens, you don't you, you know to, to purchase software and make use of it, you need to actually un have someone research it, understand it, have influence over the decision, and then be able to roll it out and require training, you know, and value the training time um, as something that's important, that's mandatory that everyone has to go to so that you can actually realize the benefit of the um, 
investment that's been made into the software. But what often happens is because law firms are not run like businesses, because it's lawyers at the top creating committees, you know, and taking input, but not um, really listening or valuing the input oftentimes, and I'm generalizing, but, and then just they'll, sometimes it just seems like they randomly pick and choose what sounds like it's good. They don't roll it out. They just make it available. And so what happens is what happened uh, to a firm I talked to a bunch of years ago, um, where the office manager, when I'd mentioned, you know, the benefits of time tracking, it was somebody who'd asked me to come in and talk about something else. Um, they wanted me to do a cloud presentation, but I talked to the office manager afterwards and uh, she's like, well, yeah, you know, the time tracking thing, you know, we invested in the software and we have it available and the lawyers just never use it. So they don't actually, you know, I think it was Belfield, you know, how it interfaced with the law firm's um, server-based uh, billing and time tracking software. And um, they purchased it and they rolled it out and no one used it because I don't think the lawyers even knew it was there or how to use it or the benefits. And so that was just a completely, it absolutely would have been value, valuable and saved the firm time and actually earned the money back 100% based upon just data I pulled from my case on this. You know, when you have passive time tracking or just the ability to capture time as you go, you capture so much more time that the software pays for itself. But in that case, it just went to waste because it hadn't been rolled out. There wasn't any training. And so the value was never realized. And I think it's because lawyers just don't run their firms like the businesses the way that they ought to as businesses. And they are businesses. And they spend a lot of time spinning their wheels because they're not running them properly. You know, one thing that, uh, and I put this on our uh, pre-show thing, but this is a good place to stick it in here. Uh, one revelation I had, I've taken this off of your point about making the money back with tech, with because we talk about that a lot that, you know, yes, it's an outlay, but you actually get it back. Yes, it's going to make you uh, reduce your billable hours, but, you know, it means you can work on other things. Uh, all of that sort of rhetoric we use a lot. One revelation I had in real time, like I had not pre-thought it, but like in the middle of this webinar uh, that Bob and I are talking about, I had a revelation that like, is that necessarily true in the way with the way in which uh, law firms are structured, uh, given the way law firms are structured, and I think uh, Steve, you might be able to talk to this a little bit too, like because you've talked a lot about origination credit in the past. Like, if I'm a, you know, you say, oh well, you don't, you know, you're more efficient, your billable hours have gone down, you're getting things done faster, but that means you can go out and get a new client, and you know, that's kind of an ideal of a partner's position that isn't always true. If I'm one of those people who has a very problematic and demanding client who requires me to be 80% of their attention at all time or else they'll go somewhere else, and that represents my $2 million book that I bring to the table, I make that more efficient. It's not like I can go out and magically get another client. I also can't get a new client who takes up any more of my time because this first one requires me to be there 80% of the time. Now all of a sudden I'm only getting a million out of it. and like. We always assume, oh, you'll be able to go off and do other things, but some client relationships and books just won't let you do that. Uh, and now in the ideal world of worlds, the law firm would respect respect that fact and you make less, but you know, you've brought this good long standing client, yada, yada. But that's just not how a lot of these places work. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? that's the one that's the one time we decide to run ourselves like a business, right? That's <laughs> you don't produce, you don't get as much money. It's, it's that's just the end of the discussion. But no, you're right. And, you know, the, the, the whole industry went through this period when I was a younger lawyer where they would be hiring more and more and more associates and every class was huge. And 
it came to the point where many of these uh, associates became partners or non-equity partners, if you will. And uh, But there wasn't necessarily enough work to keep everyone, all of them busy. And then you have superimposed what most firms do, and that is put quotas, billable hour quotas, or revenue quotas on lawyers. And now, you know, if there's not enough work to do, then you're, you're kind of, it's a double whammy, right? You'd be more efficient, you have less hours, but there's no, nothing, nothing other, there's nothing else to fill the bucket with. It's too hard to go find anything else to fill the bucket. And um, so because of that, you know, lawyers have been sort of historically, a lot of lawyers historically slow to, to be more Efficient and, and it's not necessarily an aversion to technology because when you look at the, the business side of it, collections, revenue, those sorts of things, nobody, you know, most lawyers aren't opposed to that. But when you start talking about automation that will replace ours, then well, that's a we have to think about that one a little more carefully. And the other thing I was thinking when you were talking, Nikki, I don't want to prolong this discussion, but part of it with with the structure of the law firms where you have partners. Uh, who have an ownership stake in the firm. And then you have all these other people, IT people, who have no ownership stake in the firm. That sort of lends itself to this, I don't want to say mistrust, but a lack of um, respect maybe a little bit. I mean, I, I can remember a partner in my firm who you know was asked to, to provide, uh, comply with some sort of uh, expense re recording for business development expenses. And he was, I don't have to do that shit. You work for me. Uh, and so there's this kind of attitude and it, it caused in part by only lawyers can be partners in law firms. So an IT CIO or COO of a law firm will never have an ownership stake. will never have an ownership seat at the table, irrespective of what they're paid. Um, and, you know, that that ownership stake becomes important, right? Because now you're partially responsible for the productivity of the business in a very direct way. So that's, it's, it's just a compounding series of problems, I think, that uh, lead to these disconnects. And I hope I didn't interrupt anybody and make them forget what they wanted to say. Well, I, I wonder if that kind of leads into one of the stories that I put on our on our log to discuss this week, which is this. Uh, essay uh, that was published on the Legal Evolution uh, blog uh, this week by Anuja Gillespie, uh, talking about this question of whether the model rules of professional conduct uh, should have an explicit duty of innovation <laughs> it built into them, not just the duty of tech confidence that we've talked about any number of times, but take that a step further and make it a duty of innovation so that lawyers have uh, you know, a, a duty to be moving, you know, not just a technology, uh, not just technology innovation, but practice innovation, a duty to be moving things forward in some way. Uh, and she she wrote an essay that's a, a very uh, thought thought for broking one. Uh, yeah, put that in the link here in the in the chat. Um, but and she talked to uh, several quote unquote experts. Uh, I say that in air quotes because I was one of the people she talked to about it. Uh, but I, and she asked me what I thought about that, and I, I thought it was interesting because, I mean, as you start to read through the model rules of professional conduct, there's an argument to be made that 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 there's already a duty to innovate because, I mean, we we uh, lawyers have this duty to uh, move the profession forward, move the justice system forward, to to be zealous advocates on behalf of their client, 
and if you're not always looking to improve how you deliver services and what tools you're using to deliver those services, uh, then are you really living up to your duty to serve your clients properly? Are you really zealously representing your clients if you're just always doing everything the same old, same old? Uh, and um, so, I, you know, I, I, there's no answers to that, but it, it's a really interesting issue. And uh, it plays into this whole question of whether the business model uh, inhibits innovation. And if so, uh, do do firms have some broader duty to, uh, you know, not just not just for business reasons or competitive reasons, but but for even uh, reasons of professional responsibility to be trying to innovate how they deliver services. Well, as much as I am all for lawyers innovating, and I think that that's like an ideal situation, I'm going to have to completely disagree with this whole line of um, uh, this sort of this thesis because. I mean, for starters, how do you define innovation? Man, you're bumming me out now. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how do you define innovation? I would argue that it probably varies from person to person. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, as much as I'm all about, like, for, for me, what tech competence means is lawyers understand the tech and they make educated decisions about whether to use it or not to use it in their practice, right? So, uh, you know, my mentor who recently um, passed away was this, old school criminal defense and he was fantastic and i would argue that even up until the end of his life um he died a little early because he had cancer but um he was still handling cases uh right up until he retired and uh 100 the old school way but his clients in those criminal cases were getting the absolute best representation they possibly could despite the fact that he was you know using paper and you know using computers simply to you know probably draft motions and that's it um I don't, I think that whether a lawyer or a law firm uses technology and the technology that they use varies a hundred percent across the board, whether it's, you know, and it's going to vary depending on geographic region, practice area, um, methods they already have in place, how big the firm is, whether they already have a good client base and whether they even need more clients or whether what they're doing is perfectly fine. Like for some law firms and some lawyers, they don't need any, they don't need to use tech at all. I would suggest, and they're just as efficient and effective as they possibly could. Most somehow could use tech. And I think they all have an obligation to understand tech and make educated decisions about whether to use it. And that falls under competence, but innovate. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm using him as an example, but I don't think that he was doing anything that affected his, his anything ethical. Like he wasn't doing anything that violated ethics because he wasn't innovating or was he innovating because he was on top of all the, you know, the changes in criminal law and tech, tech techniques and, or techniques and tactics and whatever. I mean, that's innovative, but it has nothing to do with tech. So I, I'm not sure. I think innovative is too broad of a concept. And I definitely don't think that that falls under our, our ethics. Um, well, just, <laughs> I, just, to, uh, just to argue one point, I mean, the, one, one of the points I made in my essay was, that, not in my essay, in my, in my contribution to her essay was that uh, you, know, you look right in the preamble of the model rules. And one of the things it says is that the lawyer has a responsibility to quote, seek improvement of the legal system, the administration of justice and the quality of legal services. So doesn't seek improvement, I don't know, implicitly suggest, you know, make it better, innovate it in some way. I, I, I think you can read that. <laughs> you know, it's, that. You see, the, the, point that, the point that uh, 
we already have some sort of duty to innovate. Sounds like some of the arguments that were made about techn tech technological competence is why do we need to add that because we already have that falls in the realm of competence. And it may very well do. You can certainly argue the point, but having added comment eight, you know, did increase sort of the attention and um, uh, uh, sensitivity to the entire technological innovation. And I think it was a good thing. It, it, it moved us forward in a lot of ways, and not the least of which is now we have some states requiring CLE on, on technology. So this may be a similar thing, although I think Nikki is right. It's sort of like the devil is in the details here. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you say this in a way that, that, would advance what it is we want to advance without it being, you know, sort of like, well, you, you know, it's a good thing. <laughs> well, that's what they did with the duty of tech competence, right? I mean, the devil's in the details. They, they were not very explicit about what that means. Uh, but no, I, I 100% agree with you that they should, if, if we're going to, if they, if anybody thought this was something viable, that it needs to be made explicit in the model rules. It's, it's not enough to just say implicit in the model rules is some duty of innovation. You, you got to spell it out. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, tell people what you're saying and, and tell them again and be as clear about it uh, before, you, before they're going to hear you. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's a sad commentary, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any other business that there is in the world, you know, they they don't need to be told to innovate. They don't. We innovate. We make more money. Everybody's happy, right? But but legal profession is uh, we have to debate whether we should be told to innovate and do better. I mean, well, I can on. see like an an ethics like. Um... Uh, an attorney appearing at a hearing and being like, listen, I was innovative. I was innovative with my trust accounts. What's the problem here? You told me to be innovative. I innovated. <laughs> you know, like, how are you going to define innovate? Yeah. <laughs> you to be very careful there, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe another solution is just if there was a good a good I don't know like a directory of technology products that lawyers could look at and and uh, you know see what's out there and what's on the landscape. Nikki, uh, what do you think of that idea? Are we leading? Was that a lead into my um my article? <laughs> okay. Um, maybe. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> um. Well, so for my uh, submission this week, I wrote. Um, I suggested an article that I wrote, uh, which sometimes we do, and in this case, it was my ABA Journal article that was on. Um, uh, and if you don't read my. Uh, column regularly. You may not know that I, what I write about each month is um, a different type of software. And I explain what it is, why lawyers might want to use it. Here's some tips in vetting or choosing the software. And then here are, here are all your options in the market, whether it's standalone or built into some other software, typically like law practice management or document management software or legal billing software. So um, what I did last month, or was it this month? last month um, was <laughs> was um, right about legal tech directories. Um, and uh, my thinking was that I'm telling lawyers about all these different kinds of software, but then it's difficult to um, vet the, locate the software, you know, a bunch of different types of software and then um, narrow it down to which ones you're going to use. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is because search engine optimization has, in my opinion, sort of um, uh, made it very difficult to locate things on the internet these days. Um, uh, there's a lot of money to be made in optimizing search. 
And so a lot of companies are making a lot of money by being at the top of search engine results. Um, and one of the types of companies that are doing this are companies that provide software review and software um, options. Um, so think like um, Captera, uh, I think there's one called Software Advice. And what they do is they just cover the gamut of all kinds of software you could ever think of. Um, and then they provide like a rundown of the software and they provide reviews and they provide a description and comparisons. But the problem is that if you go into any legal technology category, for example, because that's the space we're in, they'll, they'll claim to be talking about practice management software or bill, billing software or whatever the case may be. And there's like all sorts of random software thrown in there that clearly doesn't fall into that category that, uh, and it just leads you completely down the wrong path. So they, it wastes a lot of your time. And then the other problem is that those reviews are becoming like Amazon reviews, right? Like once those reviews start to matter and once those sites start to appear at the top of search results, those reviews matter for companies. And so then, I don't know, you know, you can't always trust the reviews that you're getting because it's not a person saying, oh, I think I want to randomly review this software. You know, uh, typically those reviews have come in through some sort of um, other methodology uh, or other impetus. So I, what I think it's really important for people searching for legal tech software to have some reliable directories that they can use that um, that are uh, have been um, curated by people in the legal tech space that understand legal technology. And so that's what I tried to do in this column was provide a number of directories that um, provide lawyers with that, uh, a, a stepping stone into the different categories, categories of software. Um, what I found as I was going through this is there were some legal tech directories that I uh, was familiar with from years ago that have not been updated or just sort of abandoned. And then there were, um, Others that really did appear to be mostly just you have to um, pay for your company to be featured, which I don't think is always useful. And um, but I tried to uh, locate a variety of different directories that one way or another at least provided a good starting point. Um, and some of them were really in depth and others just had like really listings, but an a bunch of accurate listings, at least of a category of software is a helpful starting point, too. So I went through and tried to find a handful of directories that I thought would be really useful for people searching for software. And that's what I pulled together in this article. And, you know, I, I, I say this um, not because Bob's here, but Bob's, you know, the one that he's rolled out is part I can of leave if you like. Huh? <laughs> I can leave if you'd like. No, but I mean, it's, it's a good, you know, it's a, clearly you understand the industry and I know you to be a highly ethical person. Like, you know, you have a very high, um, you have a very high bar for your ethics. And so um, I know just from knowing that about you, that the directory, I knew when you said you're creating a directory, that would be a good directory. And it is a good directory because it really does provide a um, overview and you have some transparency in terms of um, your partnerships as well, but it provides a great overview of the different categories and you know, it's coming from a source that is knowledgeable. And um, it's, I think it's a really great place to start. And then there's other ones where you can, I think you can cross compare. You can see what do they have? What do they have to say about it? What do they have listed? Is there something that might be missing? Because I think that nobody's going to have the perfect directory with everything in it in one location. So I think if you just pick one or two of the ones in my article as your starting point, it'll give you a place to get basic information about a category of software, basic information about the players. And then from there, you can reach out to a few companies or do additional research on those companies. And then 
narrow it down to just a few that you really want to do um, demos on. And you absolutely have to do the demos. I can't imagine buying software without taking advantage of the free demo that the company offers. Um, and not just you, but any stakeholders that are going to be using the software in your firm absolutely have to try it out, make sure it works for them and provide you with input that you actually listen to and take into account. But so that's what I, I wrote about was directories. And um, I think it's a good resource as is my column overall. I try to be very neutral um, and provide a really good overview in each of my columns about a specific type of software. So I think that that's a good starting point. And if you're narrow it down to a specific type of software, also try to find my column on that because I think that'll give you a little more insight as well. So that's what I wrote. I think it's, I think it was tremendously helpful column. And, you know, whenever <clears throat> I do a lot of presentations to local bars and, and state bar, particularly here in Kentucky, and, you know, <clears throat> there's always a group of people that will come up afterwards and say, you know, I'm a practicing lawyer, have a small firm. And, I mean, there's so much tech out there and I have no way of evaluating. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to turn to. I could call a vendor. And of course, they're going to tell me it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But And I don't have time to do all this because I'm trying to make it early. So, I mean, this is, would be a godsend to people like that. I'm make a, <clears throat> make a point to mention it anytime I have a chance because it's a, it is a, it is a, and it's an understandable problem. I mean, I can't keep track of all this crap either. <laughs> and I get emails all the time. I, I feel so bad for my, you know, colleagues out there trying to choose software. I get emails all the time um, in relation to one of my ABA journal columns. And they're like, just tell me, what should I pick? And I'm like, I, you know, I can't do that. I can't tell you. I don't know enough about your firm. I'm not a legal tech consultant. I've got some skin in the game, you know? And so I always have a hard time or, you know, I try to guide them um, or send them to um, an, another, like they'll ask me about a category of software that wasn't in the column they read. And so I'll try and send them to a column I wrote or some other resource to help them kind of vet the market. But you can't, there's no way you can possibly just tell a lawyer that, you know, asks you or emails you when you know nothing about their firm, nothing about their practice, nothing about their needs. Um, and that's where it's, you know, tech consultants come in sometimes and they can be really mm -hmm. valuable. I mean, maybe that's no, a no. <laughs> No, no, and 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 not to bring us uh, bring back a story I talked about last week, but uh, a thing that I really think the legal press does, uh, the legal tech press does, better than I think some people understand what that of what we do is, we can tell folks what's out there as you know, and the technicals of it until uh, the cows come home. But what we really can't do is tell you what you need, but we can tell you the use cases and build for you as the lawyer end user what you might get excited about and then you can get excited about it uh, i can't necessarily list everything but if, if i see a good example is i, I wrote about opus 2 this week and they have a product that very specifically does white collar investigations which is what i did uh, as a practicing lawyer and i was like yeah this is this is cool this is what i would have wanted for this job uh, and I was able to write a story that hopefully a white collar lawyer somewhere reads and goes, oh, yeah, that is for my use case. But what we do is build excitement among people for use cases. We can't dictate what they want. We can only lead them to it by saying, like, here, does this strike you as what you want? Yeah, I think I think. Uh... Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for the mention of, of our site in your article, Nikki. But I, I think one of the problems also is even even with the legal tech press, there's just not a lot of sort of in-depth information about products out there. 
Uh, I mean, so much of our reporting tends to be some new product coming on the market and, and we'll maybe we'll see a demo of it or maybe play around with it a little bit as a, 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 on our own and, and write something up quick about it. But, uh, you know, there's, I feel like there used to be uh, uh, many more, a greater availability of articles by practicing lawyers using these things in their practices and writing about them. And it's harder and harder to find that stuff. Um, and I mean, the ABA publications do a great job of it, but, but, you know, it's, it's relatively a trickle. I mean, you, you know, law, maybe a law practice management magazine comes out not even not even 12 times a year. I forget what it is now. Six times a year, 10 times a year, something like that. But I mean, they have maybe one article, a magazine. So that's 10 articles a year or so. Um, you know, they're great articles, but um, there needs to be more of that. I mean, that's one of the things we, we're really working on trying to do with our directory is to try and we're going to be, you know, creating a, a, a deeper article of, of those kinds of articles and resources, as well as the product listing. So there's more sort of practical guidance out there to help uh, help people understand what's out there. That's, that's a good point, Bob. I mean, I, and I struggle with that too, because, you know, I will have a product demo and it looks great, but I have no idea, you know, in, a, in an actual use case, whether this product will, will do what you say it's going to do or not, uh, or how well it will do. Now, you know, if you can, if you ask me about a product that I used when I was practicing law full time, yeah, I can I can talk a lot about that, but that's only a tiny sliver, and that's at this point rapidly becoming dated. So that you know, we can't. I always feel like we have to. I have to say to people, you know, in my articles, look, it's, this is what they said it would do. I have no idea if it will do this or not. It looks like it might, but who yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah, I that's I often I'm using that almost that exact phrasing often in my articles. It'll always be you know not that this is what it does, but this is what the company says it does. Uh, and uh, who knows? <laughs> whether, I mean, it remains to be seen whether it does. So, um, and I can't remember the product it was, and I wouldn't name them if I could. But there was some product I remember once that I looked at, and it was like it can do this cool thing, this cool thing, this cool thing. And it was a subject matter that I had practiced in. I paused. It's like those are all independently cool things, but there's never a scenario in which I would have done them in that order. You know, it, it was just like a this this the capabilities are all there but it's just not my workflow so i never would have been sold on it uh and i think i fear a lot of times especially when i cover areas i didn't practice like transactional work that i'm falling victim to that and being like all the capabilities are there i don't know if it's really your workflow well or that and i think we've said this before in the show but you also there, there are the products that come out that are products that are designed for use in an enterprise setting. I'm a solo practitioner. They can give me a review copy of it. I'm not going to learn a darn thing about it. It's not going to do anything. I mean, I mean, on a, you know, practically speaking, they can't give me a review copy of it. So, uh, I mean, I can, you know, I can log in and, and play around with my case and review my case or, or some time and billing software. But a lot of these applications that we write about are just be, certainly beyond my capability of, of using them or, or writing them in, in the setting that I'm working in. So, but, um, and yeah, the product watch column in the ABA law practice manager. Uh, yeah. I, I used to write the product watch column in the ABA law practice. So I'm a big fan of it. Uh, but what my point about that is just that it's, I think it's 10 times a year. I forget how often their magazine comes out, but, uh, it's not that a huge library of stuff, but, um, I wanted to get on, uh, uh, Steve, do you want to talk about uh, your your piece this week? 
Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> what if there was a a very large business that provided consulting services to uh, in-house legal departments and and law firms, and one of the consulting services they provided was how to better use technology to in uh, the practice of law and um, control your costs of your outside legal spend and provide lots of advice. And it turns out there may be. Good idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, this is one of these stories that I, I don't get to say this very often, but but I actually thought something like this might happen and, and said so, you know, three or four years ago. I was at a, at a, I think it was AOM, and there was a presentation by a couple of um, EY par partners, the big accounting firm, talking about how they wanted, they didn't want to reiterate many times, we're not going to practice law, but there's all these services that we could provide, and, you know, uh, we don't we don't believe there are legal problems. There are only business problems with legal implications. And so uh, afterwards, I had several conversations and with with some people there. So EY will never get big time in this. They have this big auditing practice, and Sarbanes Oxley prevents them providing consulting services uh, to people they're auditing. It's a big conflict. They'll never give up the auditing services. And so I wrote this piece that said, "Well, that's all well and good, but." What if one of these big accounting firms just split out their auditing services from their uh, consulting services and formed two separate businesses? And lo and behold, uh, last week, EY uh, announced that they are proposing to their partners to do exactly that, uh, to, to, to spin off the auditing function into a completely separate business and to spin off the consulting services probably into a... Uh, into a public company um and you know while they didn't say this is this is to get us more into the to the legal world uh i don't think they really had to i mean that while that's not the only reason they would do it uh they are the accounting firms are rapidly getting more and more into providing the kind of consulting services from a business side that leads them into uh providing uh, consulting services on the legal side, not necessarily with the practice of law, uh, although, you know, as as machine learning develops, AI is getting more sophisticated, automation is becoming more the no norm, you know, the line between what a, what is a practice of law and what is not a practice of law is becoming, in my mind, a little blurry. Uh, so the kind of services that that a big uh, accounting firm could provide to to big businesses in particular that had an impact on the practice of law is pretty significant. And they're untethered now from any sort of auditing uh, prohibitions with respect to these businesses. I think we can see a lot of things done that that were not done before, including, for example, um, you know, uh, advising clients on which law firms to hire for a particular mm -hmm. matter uh, because they have the expertise to understand who's who in the business and who does what and it's you know it's not a far far cry from that to begin to see to use a, a world a word we're familiar with integrations between accounting firms and law firms for certain matters as we've seen i think in the immigration space and maybe the patent space already so i thought it was kind of a significant development that they that, that EY is going to go this route. They have to vote on it globally, uh, which will take some time because they've got 25,000, 24,000 partners. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it, it could 
could certainly could shake up the accounting world and could have some implications for us in the legal world, even if they even if they never if we never get a non-lawyer ownership of any business, the things that they could do in the background could EY could do in the background is pretty significant. But I, I used to have a partner that would, would say, the thing you want to do with your clients in any big case is know know what all the documents are because then you're sort of indispensable. It's hard to replace that knowledge. And you apply that to here is, you know, it's knowing what the business of your of a client is, is becoming, makes you indispensable. And so we, you know, that you hear from general counsel all the time. I just wish my lawyers would know more about my business. What's hard for a lawyer to know more about the business because we're not business people. Right. But when you move it over to the accounting side, you know, the, you have the ability for these um, consulting accounting firms, if you will, to, to use their business acumen and knowledge to, to know about the business and provide business advice, which somehow impacts legal strategy, legal decisions, who to hire, how to handle, how to manage, what technology to use, how to monitor, how to budget, all these things. So I thought you know, this is kind of a, to me, it was a pretty interesting development. Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, the United States is probably the only, one of the only countries in the world in which EY isn't already practicing law. Uh, it, you know, I don't know, again, I think that's sort of a spinoff group, that, but all across the world, they, they uh, have, you know, literally literal law practices uh, as well, uh, where they're engaged in, in providing legal advice as well as those other services. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like this uh, certainly could be a, a strategically smart move for them in terms of expanding their expanding their domain, uh, and including here in the United States. Yeah, I remember you had on your show a year or so ago. I can't remember the, the guy's name, but it was from maybe from Deloitte. And he was talking about the kind of services they are providing and want to provide in, in the legal space. And it was, I remember being thinking, this is quite remarkable what, what they seem to be wanting to do and, and, and carving out this tiny little niche of practicing law, which now becomes just like, you know, a sliver of, of the whole thing that they're, they're doing. And then they take that little sliver and just, you know, say, okay, we'll, we'll hire Bob Ambrosia for you. He's the, he's the best in the field. And, you know, we, we have this little deal with Bob. It's okay. <laughs> right, well, this right. is what yeah. Richard Suskin's been talking about for years, right? Ever since the liberalization, as they call it over in the UK and elsewhere, is, you know, the big four has just, you know, been a huge competitor to lawyers and law firms. So it makes sense that they're trying to do everything they can within the bounds of what they can do here. <laughs> You know, and that they're starting to branch out. Um, I'm sure that it has proven to be very um, profitable for them in other jurisdictions and countries. So I am not at all surprised. And now that they're seeing some fractures in the, you know, ethic, ethical guidance and the rules in some of the jurisdictions, they're just trying to probably get the lay of the land and get their uh, foot in the door. So that when the door really opens, they're already in place and ready to roll things out. So definitely fault. And, and it may well be, Nikki, that they've sort of decided in the United States, at least, if we can do all these other things and get paid for all these other consulting things that we do that sort of touch on the law, and it only leaves this tiny little thing that the lawyers do, maybe we're happy with that, you know, particularly if we can kind of control who's doing it, 
uh, what lawyers are doing what and how they're doing it. I mean, it does eliminate some some big problems for you. You don't have to worry about malpractice. You don't have to worry about these pesky little ethical things. I mean, you got a lot of stuff you can. So maybe they've just decided, let's let's do everything we can and kind of box the lawyers into this tiny little little place that's called the practice. And you know, they, we, they can have the little crumbs if they want to. We'll take the big piece of pie. <laughs> yeah. One one other story I just want to mention quickly before we run out of time is uh, one I wrote about actually on Monday, uh, which was this uh, on Labor Day, which was this uh, acquisition of VLEX. Uh, and VLEX is this legal research service that I think a lot of people haven't heard of, but uh, it's it's uh, really big on a global basis. They are kind of the 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 largest international legal research service with. Uh, legal uh, resources from I think it's over 100 countries that, uh, and in uh, uh, growing at a rapid rate rate they they started out of out of Spain uh, well well over a decade ago uh, and then acquired the uh, UK uh, legal publishing service uh, justice uh, back in 2019 which brought in a sort of all the common number of common law countries into their research uh, database uh they're not huge in the united states but they're getting bigger and bigger and uh they they really only started coming into the u.s market in uh uh four or five years ago uh but but they were acquired this week really it was one private equity firm bought out another private equity firm's interest in it and took a majority ownership interest in it but uh, they are saying, you know, uh, watch us now. Uh, we're going to use this money to expand rapidly. Watch for us to be doing some uh, acquisitions in the near future. Um, and uh, so, I, I think it's it's worth uh, worth watching them, following them. Uh, I just did an interview with uh, uh, the uh, the guy who's the not the uh, not the CEO of the entire company, but the guy who's the head of their. Uh, Kind of legal group for uh, most of North America and Europe uh, and, and other parts of the world. Uh, the CEO and, uh, of our hearts, you know. Yeah, and, not, and not the real CEO, but <laughs> yeah, he's going to be on our uh, on my podcast on Monday or Tuesday or whenever we get around to posting it. Um, but uh, worth watching, uh, and uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, all right, we are at the top of the hour. Uh, Looks like it could be a big week next week. A lot of stuff happening. It's coming down the pike, it sounds like. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for next Friday's show. We might have a lot to talk about. Uh, or not, might not. Who knows? Until then, everybody have a great weekend and stay well. See you. Bye. Bye.